Hello everyone. Welcome once again to Perfect Shadows. I hope everyone had a nice holiday break last week. I definitely did now that Formula One is back on air. Um, so while I was writing the episode for Chen Shi Huang, I began to get bogged down in my details describing legalism, the governing philosophy of the state of Qin. One paragraph turns into a page, a page turned into many more, and I decided instead to create this interim slash background episode on Shang Yang and his contributions to legalism, especially with how it relates to Qin. So follow me along on this tangent, and I promise we'll be back with Chen Shi Huang in our next episode. Speaking of episodes, I've recently been called back to my work full-time, and the days are getting longer and tiring. I'm going to be changing the schedule to releasing an episode every two weeks instead of weekly. Hopefully this grants me the extra time needed to research and write out these episodes without them becoming a pain in the ass to make. I've liked producing these episodes so far, and I don't want to sour that by coming home tired and putting out crappy content. Alright, enough whining, let's dive in. So legalism is one of the six Chinese classical schools of thought, included among... Confucianism, Taoism, Moism, Yin-Yang, and logicians. It can be thought of as an ancient Chinese realpolitik. Though it can't exactly be attributed to any one single person, there's a few notable proponents. Shen Buhai, who is attributed with laying the philosophical foundations of what would become the all-important civil service examination in later dynasties. Han Fei, Shen's most famous successor and author of perhaps the most influential of all legalist texts, the Han Feiji. And most important to our story is Shang Yang, a political reformer and scholar who came to serve the state of Qin close to a century before the first emperor's birth. So now why are we talking about someone so far removed from our current topic? The answer is that this philosophy of legalism is so thoroughly entwined into the fabric of Qin government and society that it's difficult to not see it at least as a contributing factor to Qin's success, if not the main reason. It's also so deeply influential that its impact can still be easily seen in modern Chinese government today. We are focusing today on Shang's contribution in particular. Although not as absolutely influential as Han Fei in the grand scheme of Chinese dynastic politics, it was the main influence in Qin's development as a powerhouse nation. Whereas Han Fei's work was more concerned with the relationships within court, such as between the ruler and his officials, Shang instead stressed how to strengthen the state by using the people. However, some of Han Fei's work still shaped King Zheng's worldview. We're going to include this passage since it gives a nice overview of what we'll be talking about later. John Mann writes, quote, Here too, King Zheng found advice on how to behave as a ruler. The ruler was the maker of the law, and above it, how should he act? Obviously he, as the son of heaven, cannot be guided by the same principles as his earthbound officials. Like a Taoist sage, he is above right and wrong, and must withdraw into a world of mystery and transcendence, shunning all contacts that might breed familiarity, concealing his thoughts and motives. He must guard against all impulses towards mercy and affection. Since all, officials, family, even his wife, stand to gain personal freedom by his death, he must trust no one. He must be beyond emotion, doing only that which increases his power, whatever it takes. Self-interest should be his only concern. The ways to power are these. Make the law. Make it simple. Never look for men of integrity, because you will not find them. Keep your officials on the straight and narrow with rewards and punishments. If people can get rich and eminent without hard work on the land and risking death in battle, they will do so, and the state is weakened. Therefore, discourage the pursuit of wisdom. In the state of the enlightened ruler, there are no books. There are no sermons. There are no fierce feuds of private swordsmen. Cutting off the heads of the enemy is the only deed of valor. Don't think that you can build security by playing at foreign affairs, for no alliance is reliable. 
Neither power nor order can be sought abroad. They are wholly a matter of internal government. Remember this. In the past, when Confucians were honored, states fell. What people praise and the ruler honors are actually policies that lead to the ruin of the state. These, then, are your enemies, the five vermin of the essay's title. Scholars who praise the ways of former kings and speak in elegant phrases. Speechmakers who propound false schemes and borrow influence from abroad. Swordsmen who gather bands of followers. Draft dodgers who bribe their way out of military service. And merchants and artisans who make articles of no practical use, accrue wealth, and exploit farmers. These groups are the vermin of the state. The rulers do not wipe out such vermin. Then they should not be surprised to see states perish and ruling houses wane and die. End quote. So, you know, pretty positive outlook on everyone and everything. I hope you enjoyed that little taste. For now, let's focus on the man of the hour, Shang Yang. We're not going to get super in-depth into Shang Yang's entire life as we would a normal episode, but we will at least go over the basics. Think of it as a broad paint stroke on the canvas of the first emperor. So Shang Yang was born in the state of Wei. That's W-E-Y, not to be confused with Wei, W-E-I, a vassal state of Zhou, around 390 BCE. First serving under the prime minister of Wei, now W-E-I. Yes, it's a bit confusing. No, you won't be quizzed on this later. The story goes that he responded to a sort of job posting by Duke Xiao of Qin, who was looking far and wide for some talent to help him reform the state of Qin. According to Roger Bosky, the state of Qin, at the time, was considered to be, quote, a backward frontier state that had not yet fully adopted the culture of the Chinese elite, and thus lived in a Spartan simplicity. Shang regarded the simplicity as an advantage, because the state of Qin was less corrupted and had fewer parasites, such as feudal lords, scholars, and merchants. Lord Shang wanted to rewrite the laws so that Qin could become a warrior state and attain supremacy over other Chinese states, end quote. Shang presented the other schools of thought we mentioned earlier, such as Confucianism, Taoism, etc., but Duke Xiao wasn't having any of it. Finally, Shang pulled legalism out of his hat, and Duke Xiao began to like what he was hearing. Like may actually be underselling it a bit. He was so enthralled by it that they spoke for three days and three nights, during which they planned the reforms that would be enacted in Qin. So needless to say, Shang Yang entered into the employ of Duke Xiao of Qin, and together they remade all aspects of the state's government and society. Shang actually even held a military post as a general at one point, taking several cities that belonged to the state of his former employer, Wei. In one of the encounters, he essentially is pitted against a friend, or at the very least a close acquaintance, from when he worked for Wei. He invites the general over on friendly terms and offers to swear an oath of alliance so that they can both dismiss their troops and end the suffering. The two generals swear their oaths and begin drinking together. Once they've been partying for a while, Shang's hidden soldiers spring up and take the Wei general prisoner. Shang orders an all-out assault on the Wei army and completely wipes them out. The state of Wei is left in disarray, and Shang Yang returns to Qin, victorious. He's given a number of towns to rule and is made a lord. Lord Shang, as he was now called, remained in his post as prime minister for a decade. Now, following the death of Duke Xiao, his son's followers, afraid of the tremendous power Lord Shang had accumulated throughout the years, began to accuse him of plotting a revolt. Turns out you make quite a few powerful enemies along the way when you're enacting strict laws and harsh punishments everywhere. Lord Shang flees the capital, narrowly avoiding arrest, before trying to seek refuge at an inn under a false name of no identification. In one of those ironic situations straight out of a movie, the innkeeper refuses to grant him lodging. Sima Qian records the innkeeper saying, quote, Lord Shang's laws stipulate that anyone giving lodging to a person who lacks proper credentials will be prosecuted. 
Lord Sheng sighed and said, I made the law, and this is what I get. End quote. He eventually makes his way to the state of Wei. If you think everyone kind of hated him there after all the things he'd done against them, like betraying his former friend slash general, destroying their armies, taking their cities, well, you'd be absolutely right. He tried to head elsewhere, but Wei officials figured it'd be easier to stay in Qin's good graces by returning Lord Shang rather than letting him go, so they dropped him off at the border. Lord Shang at this point pretty much figured he may as well attempt the revolt they had accused him of plotting in the first place, only to be crushed by the Qin armies. King Hui, the new ruler of Qin, had Lord Shang tied to some carriages, torn apart in two, and his entire family executed. Alright, so that's the abridged version of Shang Yang's life. Now let's delve into the actual philosophy of legalism itself. This is going to be the meat and potatoes of our episode. It was born out of the chaotic warring states period as part of the hundred schools of thought. While other philosophies sought peace as a goal or a way of life, legalists were born out of a rejection of that notion. John Mann Wright, quote, Peace, though, was not a condition achieved for long amid the incessant squabbling of the warring states. A school of cynics arose, asking each other and their rulers a tough question. What was the point of cultivating the arts of peace if they did not lead to peace? Their answer was brutally pragmatic. None at all. The only thing that mattered was effectiveness, in war and in peace. In peace, the wise ruler prepared for war. In war, he ensured victory. In victory, he preserved peace by preparing for yet more war. Stability was all, and stability could be guaranteed only under strong leadership. Out went the notion that virtue and wisdom could spread by example. There was no room now for the old families, the old feudal estates, the old rules of chivalry, the old individualism, the old Confucian virtues. End quote. This repudiation of Confucianism is another primary aspect of legalist scholars, and it's something you'll see pop up time and time again throughout the text. So the term legalism, or fa jia, itself is thought to be a sort of invention by Sima Tan, who you'll remember from last week's episode as the father of Sima Chan, the grand historian. Translated, it essentially means the ability to manage affairs and men. Tan says his followers, quote, are strict and have little kindness, but their alignment of the divisions between lord and subject, superior and inferior, cannot be improved upon. They do not distinguish between kin or stranger or dif- They do not distinguish between They do not distinguish between kin and stranger or differentiate between noble and base. All are judged All are judged as one by their fa. Thus they sunder the kindness of treating one's kin as kin and honoring the honorable. It is a policy that could be practiced for a time, but not applied for long. Thus I say, they are strict and have little kindness. But as for honoring rulers and derogatory But as for honoring rulers and derogating, but as for honoring rulers and derogating subjects, and clarifying social division and offices so that no one is able to overstep them, none of the hundred schools could improve upon this. End quote. Paul Goldin. Paul Golden continues writing, quote, "The weakness of Fajia philosophy. Quote, the weakness of Fajia philosophy." On this account, is that it forces everyone to abide by cold-blooded rules. The strength is that it inhibits dissension by clearly demarcating everyone's role in society. End quote. So we're essentially looking at a philosophy which posits that humans are inherently egocentric, selfish, and absolutely need strong and severe laws to protect against those natural impulses. Authoritarian rule is the order of the day here, ladies and gentlemen. 
Shang traces back the formation of the state as the inevitable result of growing populations which tended to focus only on the well-being of their own families or clans. As disorder grew, these clans would pick certain people from among the community to, if not govern outright, then to at least be seen as more important than other members of society, thus beginning the development of an elevated class. These elders, if you want to call them that, would have been the first to attempt to educate the populace on proper morality. However, as the population continued to grow, their standing would diminish and they too would devolve into selfish infighting in turn. Rules could be introduced, but without implementation, they would be useless. So when these elders have, would have so then these elders would have to designate officials to oversee the application of laws. Once these officials were around but operated independently of each other, a single ruler had to be established to hold power over the officials. With the position of the sole ruler, the power of the elders dwindled and they instead became the nobility. All of this is a direct result of the inherent selfishness of people as a whole. Without a strong ruler and a strong set of laws, notice that we said laws and not education. Society can never function for the good of the whole. It would always, sooner or later, revert back to the self-seeking upheaval of our natural state. Shang writes, quote, In antiquity, the people resided together and dwelled herd-like in turmoil. Hence, they were in need of superiors. So all under heaven is now happy. So all under heaven is happy having superiors and considers this orderly rule. Now, if you have a sovereign but no laws, it is as harmful as having no sovereign. If you have laws but are unable to overcome those who wreak if you have laws but are unable to overcome those who wreak havoc, it is as if you have no laws. Although all under heaven have no peace without a ruler, they delight in touting his laws. Hence, the entire generation is in a state of confusion. Yet to benefit the people of all under heaven, nothing is better than orderly rule, and in orderly rule, nothing is more secure than establishing the ruler. The way of establishing the ruler is nowhere broader than in relying on laws. In the task of relying on laws, nothing is more urgent than eradicating villainy. The root of eradicating villainy is nowhere deeper than in making punishment stern. Hence, the true monarch prohibits through rewards and encourages through punishments. He pursues transgressions and not goodness. He relies on punishments to eradicate punishments." End quote. He goes on to explain that punishments must be as severe as possible to fully eradicate selfish criminal urges. Criminals continue to commit crimes without regard to personal safety or their reputation because the benefits far outweigh the possible punishments. If the laws are enforced throughout the land, the criminal's morality and regard for their reputation can be molded toward good. If the punishments are made as severe as possible, the benefits will no longer tip the scale in favor of committing the crime. Rather, fear of the punishment, along with the desire to preserve the reputation, will remove all desires to commit the crime. If a ruler is able to show that one's reputation is more important and that the benefits of not committing a crime far outweigh the risks, then his people will be able to overcome their inherent selfishness. Sima Qian writes of Shang's reforms, quote, He commanded that the people be divided into tens and fives and that they supervise each other and be mutually liable. Anyone who failed to report criminal activity would be chopped in two at the waist, while those who reported it would receive the same reward as that for obtaining the head of an enemy. Anyone who actively hit a criminal would be treated the same as one who had surrendered to an enemy, i.e., he would be executed and all property confiscated. Any family with more than two adult males who did not divide the household would pay a double military tax. 
those who had achievements in the army would in proportion receive an increase in rank in the 20 rank hierarchy in which the entire populace was rated. Those who engaged in private quarrels would be punished with a severity that accorded with the gravity of their quarrel. Those who devoted themselves to the fundamental enterprises and through their farming and weaving contributed much grain and cloth would be remitted from tax and corvée, while those who worked for peripheral profits in trade and crafts and those who were idle or poor would be confiscated as slaves. Those in the royal family who had no military merit would not be listed in the registers of royal relatives. For the fields, he opened up the Qian and Mo, horizontal and vertical pathways, and set up boundaries. He equalized the military levies and land tax and standardized the measures of capacity, weight, and length. End quote. Although not the full breadth of reforms enacted by Shang, these certainly helped remake Qin society in a number of ways. Standardization of weights and measures, something which we have seen in the previous rulers we've talked about, also helped to unify the Qin state. The first emperor would again the first emperor would again standardize weights, measures, and perhaps most importantly, the first emperor would again standardize weights, measures, and perhaps most importantly, writing throughout the conquered kingdoms as well. By standardizing such everyday parts of life, the conqueror is able to create another sense of unity throughout his new kingdom and tear away at what could otherwise be a barrier to the full assimilation of the subjugated peoples in this new Qin state. As everyone was tasked with keeping watch on their charged as everyone was tasked with keeping watch on their neighbors, suspicions and denunciations were prevalent, and people who kept quiet risked being charged as accessories after the fact, losing their, and by proxy their families, property and being executed. Those who became informants or turned others in, however, could count on being rewarded handsomely. The absolute strict adherence to laws and intolerance toward criminal acts are perhaps the most well-remembered aspects of Shang's version of legalism, although he covers in great length the positive incentives which could be used to ensure obedience and proper social structures. This carrot-and-stick approach applied to virtually all stratas of society. It's also readily available. It's also readily evident that this new Qin society, at least according to Shang, was to be primarily focused on agricultural output and military proficiency. Shang writes, quote, The people can be induced to till and fight, can be induced to become itinerant servants, and can be induced to study. It all depends on how superiors grant them ranks and emoluments. If superiors grant these in exchange for merit and toil, the people go to war. If they grant them for studying the poems and documents, the people study. End quote. Now Yuri Pines, quote, the recommendation, which is repeated throughout the book, appears quite simple. Grant ranks and offices exclusively to those involved in agriculture and warfare and deny those ranks and offices to talkative advisors, whose activities are singled out in the text as particularly detrimental. Ranks and offices become the primary means of social engineering. Careful implementation of the system of ranks of merit, which, remember, was the hallmark of Shangyang's reforms, will profoundly reshape the people's behavior. Henceforth, to satisfy their material and social aspirations, the people will have to engage in agriculture and warfare alone. Yet making ranks an efficient means of social engineering is possibly only yet making ranks an efficient means of social engineering is possible only when these ranks determine the social and economic life of the populace in its totality. This in turn requires preventing any alternative means of enrichment and empowerment. End quote. 
by tying one's social advancement strictly to these two professions which benefit the state, agriculture and warfare, the people would be forced into helping the state grow and prosper in order to satisfy their inherent selfish need to gain advantages over one another. The betterment of the state was the be-all and all of society, and Shang spared no words for those who considered leeches on society. Writing, The betterment of the state was the be-all and Betterment of the state was the be-all and all of society, and Shang spared no words for those he considered leeches, writing, quote, Those who do not work but eat, who do not fight but attain glory, who have no rank but are respected, who have no emolument but are rich, who have no office but lead, these are called villains, end quote. With passages such as this, we can see why everyone in power turned on Lord Shang following Duke Xiao's death. The hereditary nobles and petty court ministers were the scourge of society in his eyes, and, from our previous passages, you can imagine what punishments he had in mind for those he deemed to be, quote, villains. And, from our previous passages, you can imagine what punishments he had in mind for those he deemed to be villains. With the military, quote, the social impact of military service is clear from the fact that military distinction, specifically the beheading of enemy combatants, serves as a primary means of advancing up the social ladder. Being granted a rank is not a hollow honor. Rather, it entitles the owner to manifold social and economic benefits and eventually the right to join officialdom. It also explains that the officer's promotion was based not on individual valor, but on the success of their unit. End quote. Advancement based on military success is not a new idea, but allowing it to apply to even the lowliest soldiers certainly helps, if nothing else, to provide a permanent morale boost and motivation to the army, especially knowing that officers still had a duty to their entire unit to make sure they all performed well, otherwise they would not be rewarded simply for individual success. This idea of working for the betterment of the unit, rather than the individual, is what courses throughout Shang's philosophy. And while the military was separate from civilian life, they were not wholly exclusive. Shang actually goes into details on how civilian officials were to assist the military in overseeing the granting of rewards in order to provide a check on each other. The military officials were tasked with bringing about results in a battle, such as heads of the enemy, and civilian officials were tasked with ensuring rewards were properly distributed. If either party attempted any shenanigans, such as padding numbers with civilian heads or not rewarding those responsible, the guilty party would be subject to strict punishments. Even in warfare itself, civilian officials were made to work closely with the military to gauge defenses and ensure battles were conducted correctly, while soldiers who most craved promotions were allowed to volunteer to fight in the most heated sections of the battles. Shang understands that war is naturally unappealing to humans, but if a ruler is able to create such incentives that war becomes appealing, then he has truly achieved control over society. He writes, quote, When the people are brave, war ends in victory. When the people are not brave, war ends in defeat. He who is able to unify the people in war, his people are brave. He who is unable to unify the people in war, his people are not brave. When you enter a state and observe its governance, you know that he, you know that he whose people are usable is powerful. How can I know that people are usable? When the people look at war as a hungry wolf looks at me, the people are usable. As for war, it is something the people hate. He who is able to make the people delight in war is the true monarch. Among the people of a powerful state, fathers send off their sons, elder brothers send off their younger brothers, 
wives send off their husbands, and all say, Do not come back without achievements. They also say, If you violate the military law and disobey orders, you will die, and I shall die. Under the canton's control, there is no place to flee from the enemy ranks, and migrants can find no refuge. Under the canton's control, there is no place to flee from the army ranks, and migrants can find no refuge. To order the army ranks, link them into five-men squads, distinguish them with badges, and bind them with orders. Then there will be no place to flee, and defeat will never ensue. Thus, the multitudes of the three armies will follow the orders as water flows downward, and even facing death, they will not turn back. End quote. Here again we see the earlier notion that by making not just the benefits, but also the reputation of a man way greater than the unlawful, Here again we see the earlier notion that by making not just the benefits, but also the reputation of a man way greater than the unlawful options, in this case desertion and cowardice, the ruler is able to suppress the intrinsic selfishness of the individual. With agriculture, Shang's vision was not able to be realized as thoroughly as with the military. The merit-based promotions, which could so readily be measured in the military through enemy heads, was not as strictly defined in agriculture. There was no set measure for how much harvested crop would reward one with a better social position, for example. Yuri Pines, however, believes this was not the intended method for determination. Rather, he suggests that rank could be purchased by farmers. The larger your yield, the higher rank you could purchase, thus satisfying the requirement of bettering the state in order to better yourself, in this case by building its grain reserves, allowing for further military expeditions. He points to a passage by Shang that reads, quote, Hence, when the people are rich and cannot be used, let the people use provisions to attain ranks. Ranks will surely be bestowed according to one's efforts. Then the farmers will not be indolent. End quote. Repeating again his tipping of the scales toward good, Shang gives plenty of motivation to why agriculture should be pursued, writing, quote, If you can cause merchants and peddlers and crafty and tricky people not to prosper, then even if you do not want to enrich the state, you will not but attain that. Hence it is said, He who wants the farmers to enrich his state makes food within the borders expensive. He must impose multiple taxes on those who do not farm and heavy levies on profits from the markets. Then the people will have to work in the fields. Those who do not work in the fields will have to exchange their products for food. When food is expensive, those who work in the fields benefit. When working in the fields brings benefit, then those who engage in it are many. When food is expensive and purchasing it is not profitable, and in addition it is heavily taxed, then the people will have to cast away the occupations of merchants and peddlers and crafty and tricky people and engage in profiting from the soil. Thus, the people's strength is fully committed to the soil alone. End quote. By further stigmatizing the professions of merchants and artisans, Shang serves two purposes. One, the power of these professions is diminished, preventing the emergence of a richer class. And two, the people would naturally rather become soldiers or farmers rather than deal with the sullied reputations and increased fines or penalties. Once again, the state was tipping the scales toward community enrichment rather than individual profit. When it comes to the laws governing the people, Shang writes, quote, When the people are weak, the state is strong. When the people are strong, the state is weak. Hence, the state that possesses the way devotes itself to weakening its people. End quote. The final part is not meant to destroy the spirits of the people, but rather to destroy their instinctual inclination towards selfish action. 
And while the punishments for even petty crimes may seem too harsh to modern audiences, the intent was never to punish for punishment's sake. Shang points out throughout his work that the goal is to erase the need for punishments by using overly harsh punishments. Wait a minute, what? This might sound a bit confusing, but it can make sense. In Shang's words, quote, The prohibitions of the former kings, such as carrying out executions, cutting off feet, or branding the face, were imposed not because they sought to harm the people, but only to prohibit villainy and to stop transgressions. Hence, to prohibit villainy and stop transgressions, nothing is better than making punishments heavy. When punishments are heavy, and criminals are inevitably captured, then the people dare not try to break the law. Hence, there are no penalized people in the state. When there are no penalized people in the state, it is said, clear punishments eliminate executions. End quote. So essentially, by making the risks involved with committing a crime so heavy-handed, the populace would have no choice but to not break the law. Thus, the severity of the punishments eventually becomes inconsequential, since the people that have altogether stopped breaking laws and thus the severity of the punishments eventually becomes inconsequential, since the people have altogether stopped breaking laws in the first place. John Mann compares it to a famous work I'm sure all of you are at the very least aware of. He writes, quote, Shang's advice was intended to impose the ultimate control on records of the past, on memory itself, an aim famously pinpointed by George Orwell in 1984. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. These grim policies are justified by the tyrant's defense of tyranny down to the, to the ages. Tyranny down the ages. These grim policies are justified by the tyrant's defense of tyranny down the ages. If you do no wrong, as defined by the state, you have nothing to fear. As Orwell observed, the perfect totalitarian society is one whose citizens are so drilled to conformity that there is no need to kill or torture anyone. Lord Shang foreshadows 1984. The aim of legalism is to create a world in which laws are never broken, and so there is no need for punishment. If light offenses are punished heavily, then heavy offenses are not committed. This is said to be abolishing penalties by means of penalties, and if penalties are abolished, affairs of state will succeed. In such a system, in which officials prove themselves by the rigidity of which they administer the law, the ruler's court will not be a prey to flattery and slander. Intelligence, thoughtfulness, judgment, these qualities are undesirable in an official, for they inspire criticism and opposition." End quote. Now to look at Shang's policy on education. Those of you who know some of the first emperor's more infamous exploits will recognize that he was not, how should I say, particularly well inclined towards scholars. Shang writes, quote, Poems, documents, rites, music, goodness, self-cultivation, benevolence, uprightness, argumentativeness, cleverness. When the state has these ten, superiors cannot induce the people to engage in defense and fighting. If the state is ruled according to these ten, then if the enemy arrives, it will be dismembered, and even if the enemy does not arrive, the state will be impoverished. He continues, Nowadays, all the rulers of our age are worried that their states are endangered. He continues, Nowadays, all the rulers of our age are worried that their states... He continues, Nowadays, all the rulers of our age are worried that their states are endangered and their, and their soldiers are weak, so they strive to heed the persuaders. Persuaders form legions. They multiply words and adorn sayings, but are of no real use. 
The sovereign is fond of their arguments and does not seek their substance. The persuaders are satisfied. The roads are full of skillful The roads are full of skillful talkers, and from generation to generation they go on and multiply. The people see that this is the way to reach kings, lords, and grandees, and all learn from them. They form cliques and associations, debate state affairs, and come in profusion. Lower people are fond of them, grandees like them. Therefore, among the people, few are engaged in agriculture, whereas peripatetic, whereas peripatetic eaters are plenty. As they are plenty, the farmers are indolent. As the farmers are indolent, the land becomes a wasteland. If learning becomes habitual, the people turn their backs on farming. They follow talkers and persuaders, speak grand words, and engage in false debates. They turn their backs on farming and travel to get food, trying to exceed each other in words. Hence the people abandon their superiors, and those who do not behave as subjects become more and more numerous. This is the teaching that impoverishes the state and weakens the army. If the state makes use of the people according to their words, then the people do not take care of farming. It is only the clear-sighted ruler who knows that being fond of words will neither strengthen the army nor expand the territory. Only the sage in ruling the country engages in the one, for example, agriculture and warfare. Only the sage in ruling the country engages in the one, agriculture and warfare. He consolidates efforts on agriculture, and that is all. End quote. So in case I need a clarification, the state definitely shouldn't aim to undertake scholarly pursuits, nor should they allow it for the populace. The pursuit of education as a whole peels off people who would otherwise be directly contributing to the well-being of the state, either through agriculture or the military. As if losing these people wasn't bad enough, they become leeches on society and attract greater numbers of people to their ranks who do not want to work hard, becoming an ever-growing burden on the state. Now the final part I want to cover today is actually all due to a specific journal article I found when doing research for this episode. The article in particular stood out for me because it actually ties in beautifully to our previous episode by Roger Bosky of Occidental College entitled Kautilya's Arthashastra and the Legalism of Lord Shang. That's right, the very same Kautilya from our Chandragupta Maria episodes. Once I got to reading it, the comparisons were interesting to say the least. Shang and Kautilya actually wrote their works within about three decades of each other. A happy little coincidence that these two men were off helping build empires in a supporting role and coming to some of the same conclusions on how to govern effectively. Things like the necessity of conquest in order to unify states and bring about stability, and the necessity for laws to ensure society remains stable. This is not to say that they agreed on everything, however. In fact, they actually disagreed on most things. For one, Cautilia stressed that Indian kings were tasked with preserving the social caste and preventing people from venturing outside their respective positions in life, while Shang argued for allowing the people to rise up in station provided they were benefiting the state. While Kautilya espoused that a good ruler should listen to his people's grievances, Shang would have preferred the people to simply obey the rules and commands given. This isn't to say that Shang was fully against the people's wishes. In fact, Shang actually called for a sort of process when creating new laws, wherein the people's dispositions would be measured, thus preventing arbitrary laws from being created and ensuring that the ratified laws wouldn't be seen as inherently harmful to any one person, and ensuring the ratified laws wouldn't be seen as inherently harmful to the people. What Shang would not have agreed with would be the questioning of ratified laws in the form of grievances by the people. Once the law was law, the people had better follow it. Shang would ensure both court officials and the general populace would follow these laws strictly due to the severity of the prescribed punishments. The possibility of collective punishment would, more often than not, be sufficient enough to ensure proper enforcement throughout the state. 
Cautilia, on the other hand, called for reliance on undercover spies spread throughout the kingdom to report back on who wasn't following the laws, wherein strict punishments would be doled out appropriately. These spies, disguised as everyone from monks to rice dealers, were also meant to uncover any treasonous plots or dissenters, effectively turning Maurya India into a police state. Another primary difference is their view on bureaucracy. Shang advocated for a smaller court. Quote, Nowadays the ruler relies on many officials and numerous clerks. To monitor them, he establishes assistants and supervisors. Assistants are installed and supervisors are established to prohibit officials from pursuing personal profit. Yet assistants and supervisors also seek profit, so how would they be able to prohibit each other? End quote. Shang's worry over bureaucratic officials' abuse of power would be described succinctly by Roman poet Juvenal centuries later as who will guard the guardians or who will watch the watchmen. Cautilia, on the other hand, was all about having a large bureaucracy. Bosky writes, quote, Cautilia's laws would have been far more extensive than those of Lord Shang, because Cautilia was more interested in legislating the day-to-day -day behavior of the king's subjects. While one feels that Lord Shang had a certain contempt for officials who were not farming or fighting and would like to keep their number to an absolute minimum, Cautilia apparently and wholeheartedly embraced an extensive bureaucracy of officials. He continues, Although Lord Shang seemed to accept the creation of government offices grudgingly, Cautilia happily outlined a vast and detailed bureaucracy to administer state affairs and especially the economy. Has there ever been such a centralized bureaucratic administration that sought to control such details of ordinary people's lives? Consider just some of Cautilia's long list of government officials. Administrator of Revenue, Director of Trade, Director of Forests, Superintendent of the Armory, Superintendent of Yarns, Director of Agriculture, Controller of Spirituous Liquors, Superintendent of Courtesans, Superintendent of Cattle, Superintendent of Elephants, and Superintendent of Chariots, end quote. Finally, their views on the economy were like night and day. As we discussed earlier, quote, Lord Shang depicted a state in which no one would live off another, and all would work to make a living. He wanted neither idle scholars living well at the palace off taxes on the peasantry, nor some lazy son living off the wealth and work of his father. In fact, Chin was to be a state in which it is impossible to hire servants, and each household would be headed by exactly one adult male. Two brothers seeking to live together with their families would be heavily taxed, because Lord Shang wanted the maximum number of fields under cultivation, and because he sought to weaken or undermine the extended patriarchal family so that he could increase the powers of the state. In short, with very few exceptions, each adult male would farm." Cautilia's economy was directly influenced by the state's involvement, but it also allowed, or even encouraged, all the frivolities that Shang and Qin eschewed in their Spartan state. Bosky writes, quote, Whereas Lord Shang would have abolished music, fine clothes, and amusements, Cautilia wanted an economy that produced and allowed all those things and more. The king and his subjects, for Cautilia, were to enjoy everyday pleasures, which were among the good things in life and appropriate to the householder stage in the life of a Hindu. When Cautilia knew that a king or an individual could be addicted to certain pleasures, he mentioned most prominently gambling, wine, and women, he approved even these pleasures in moderation." End quote. With all these differences in philosophy, I hope you found this extra section as interesting as I did. It's neat seeing how two political juggernauts of their respective nations developed such long-lasting political treatises at nearly the same time. So we finally reached the end of our episode on Shang Yang and legalism. Lord Shang was, if nothing else, an audacious man, hell-bent on reforming the Qin state by directly attacking the parasitic nobility and the wealthy merchants. He wrote, quote, The important thing in undertaking the administration of a country is to make the rich poor and the poor rich. End quote. 
Such revolutionary ideas would make him many enemies along the way, powerful ones who successfully came after his life once his protector died. Even Sima Qian viewed him negatively, writing, quote, Lord Shang was a man endowed by heaven with a cruel and unscrupulous nature. If we note how he approached Duke Xiao with discourses on the way of the emperor and the king, we see that he was proffering mere empty theories that did not represent his true intent. These actions likewise reveal that Lord Shang was a man of little mercy. That he ended in such ill repute in the state of Qin is not without reason. End quote. This ill repute was almost certainly the work of those who Shang crusaded against. Regardless of the outcome, Lord Shang's legalist reforms remade the state of Qin and laid the foundation for the first emperor's eventual unification of what would become China. As always, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show so far, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening on. This week, I've only included a photo of a statue of Lord Shang, because there wasn't much else to find. You can see it on our Instagram, at Perfect Shadows Podcast. Works cited can be found on the website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com. If you have any comments or ideas, please shoot me an email to perfectshadowspodcast at gmail.com. Next time, now armed with a better understanding of what made Chin number one, we'll check back in with the first emperor as he tries to turn all of his newly conquered territories into one big legalist Chin state. All right then, see you soon. <laughs>